1: Hello and welcome to The Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer.
2: And I'm Gabriel Marcotti and we thank you for being with us in this bumper week of European Finals. Now, with us in the studio is a former Nottingham Forest fullback. Nottingham Forest, of course, winners of two European Cups. Although, Gregor, I don't think you made the team that day. No,
3: not in my time I
2: <laughs> And, of course, he's also a columnist for The Times, Gregor Robertson. We also have... One of the true connoisseurs of the European game, Mr. James Gearbrand. And best of all, the star of the show, joining us as he prepares to embark on his 12 hour odyssey to Baku, it's Ollie Kay.
1: Let's start then with the biggest game in European club football, the Champions League final taking place on Saturday night between Liverpool and Tottenham in Madrid. We're joined now on the phone by Paul Joyce. And Paul, by the time the Champions League final comes around, it will have been three weeks since Liverpool and Spurs took part in a competitive match. Is it fair to say that's not ideal?
4: Yes, not ideal, I don't think. I think Jurgen Klopp's found the sort of delay in the... Between the last game of the season and this final, a, a bit of a, a bit irritating. Um, I think Liverpool tried to organise a a game on Saturday in their Marbella training camp, but because a lot of the other leagues had already uh, finished, the quality and, and range of opposition was was severely limited. So I think they ended up playing a Benfica B side, Stoke under twenty three side, and it was just sort of wasn't really even 45 minutes each half. It was a trimmed-down version of that. So, no, I don't think it's ideal the length of time, but at the same
2: time, you know, we just need to get on with it, really. Obviously, we're taping this. I'm going to give away a secret here. We're taping this on a Monday. The one positive of, of this longer break is that there might be some some injured players or players who had already come back, but maybe you weren't sure if they could start, thinking of Oxley chamberlain yeah. maybe. Can you just give us an update? As you understand it, and nobody's going to hold you to account here and say Joyce, he's thick, he doesn't know anything about Liverpool because you are talking to us on a Monday and a lot can happen between now and Saturday. But on the lineup, any new people who might be available um, and anybody who you think might make it into the starting 11, specifically, I guess, in midfield and at the back?
4: No, I think the key one for Liverpool has been around the fitness I mean, of you know, Obviously, missed the end of the season with an adductor problem. He reported to Spain earlier than the rest of the team um, with his own personal physio from the club and was doing some stuff out there. So I think he won't have played since the Barcelona first leg and even then he only came on for the the final 15 minutes, I think. So I think he would be the, the one that Klopp needs to check on this week. Otherwise, I think Liverpool team's fairly settled. I think that the choice that he's got is probably Milner or Wijnaldum in midfield. I feel he might go Wijnaldum to to start the game. Um but really that's the only that's the only headache that Klopp has got.
2: There's a choice of Wijnaldum and Milner, I presume Henderson and Fabinho are gonna be the other two yeah. central midfielders. Yeah. Should he feel that Firmino's not ready or, or whatever? Are we looking at Origi?
4: I would think so, but but then he obviously played Ronaldo in that advanced role um, in the first leg at the Camp Nou. He has got options. Shakiri could be an option. say Chamberlain, Lallana. But you would think sort of Origi with his goals in in the semi-final second leg could benefit from there. I mean, hopefully Firmino's fit from Klopp's point of view. It's just that he, I think he would, having not played since that Barcelona first leg, I think he will be the one that has been on his mind in the build-up to this game. I think the rest of the positions are fairly set. The defence will will be set. Firmino's fit. He takes his place in the front three. And then, as we said, the the sort of midfield head, Milner or Rinaldin, really.
1: What about Tottenham, then? There's always been a few questions over whether or not Harry Kane's rushed back from previous injuries. But, Gregor, knowing how important this is for Harry Kane to be fit, you'd expect him to take part, if he comes through all the tests that are necessary.
3: Yeah, I mean he's their talisman, uh, top goal scorer. He's the he's the one that I think he's going to play if if fit. Um, obviously, people have stepped up, particularly Saw and Mura, when 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 they've had to when he's been injured during the season. But I think if he's fit, he's going to play.
5: I think that's that's absolutely true. I and mean, I think if he's, if he's fit, he, there's no there's no real kind of debate that if Harry Kane's fit. He'll he'll play. And you know maybe if he's kind of 90% fit, then he'll probably start as well. What I would say is I think the absolute worst thing that Tottenham possibly could do, and as we've mentioned, there's been quite a long break leading up to the Champions League final, so he's had a lot of recovery time and, you know, maybe he will be completely fully fit. But I think the worst thing Tottenham could do would be to start a 60% not-really-fit Harry Kane. I think throughout the season, we've seen that this is actually a very resilient team that is more than capable of playing very well without Harry Kane, maybe with the exception of the last month of the Premier League campaign when everyone was knackered and they were probably prioritising the Champions League anyway. But if you kind of look at all the stats, the team in Kane's absence, if you look at how they played against Ajax in the Champions League semi-final when they absolutely deserved to win that tie based on expected goals and chances created and everything like that and generated a tonne of attack against a good team... This is a team that is not massively diminished by not having Harry Kane, apart from maybe in the sort of talisman sense. But then actually, not having someone like Kane can psychologically be quite galvanising sometimes because everyone kind of steps up in his absence. But obviously, if he is fit, there's no debate.
2: Joycey, painting very broad brushstrokes, hopefully you'd agree that of oh, the two managers, Pochettino's the one who's more likely to do something tactical, change a formation, approach things differently. And we saw a little bit of that from Klopp, for example, in the first against Barcelona when he started Gomez or, or and obviously played Wijnaldum further up. But but generally speaking, would it be fair to say that Klopp is more likely to go out the best eleven, play the way he plays and Pochettino's the one who's going to maybe worry more about the opposition, maybe make an adjustment to try and find an edge?
4: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think Klopp's you know, I'd be, he'd be surprised if he... I, mean, I just don't think he'll deviate from 4-3-3. I think in the games Liverpool and Tottenham have had recently, there's always been sort of spells where Liverpool have been on top and haven't really translated dominance into goals. And then Pochettino's been very clever and changed something within those games and Tottenham have, have sort of wrestled back the initiative and, and looked stronger at, at times. The last game at Anfield recently... He probably could have won that game. You know, there was a Sissoko chance when he was he was through on goal, and it was Van Dijk was covering Sissoko, and and um, so on. I think Pochettino is very good at influencing it from the sidelines. I think Klopp doesn't get enough credit for that as well. I think he's shown the season that he you know there was a lot of doubt at the start of the season about the departure of Buvach from his backroom staff, you know, the man called the brain and who had been with him for 17 years and that without him, Klopp was going to be bereft. And I think Klopp's shown this season that he's more than just somebody who fist pumps and smiles and bear hugs. I think he, he's probably enjoyed being able to coach again a little bit more than maybe he did when Bouvac was there.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about Liverpool and their full-backs. Trent Alexander-Arnold. What only Eden Hazard and Ryan Fraser had more Premier League assists. Then you've got Gregor, your namesake, Andy Robertson, uh, as well. What do you make of Liverpool's fullbacks and how on earth does Spurs stop them?
3: Well, first of all, they're, they've been incredible this season. Um, I, I don't think there are many English footballers who are kind of as technically complete as Trent Alexander-Arnold. I think. You know, the way he strikes a ball, his, his assists, his crossing, he's remarkable. And you know, people spoke earlier when he first broke through about the possibility of him playing in midfield at some point. I, I'm sure he could. But full-back's now a position where he can influence the game just as much, and he's he's doing that. Another side, Robertson is just a bundle of energy, tenacious, he kind of... You know that that moment against Barcelona, which sort of, when, he, when he ruffled uh, Messi's hair, it just kind of that sums him up. He's a he's a force of nature, so and he sort of represents what Klopp wants in his team, I think, on the pitch. So um, they've been been incredible. How to stop them is a difficult one. I think really it'll depend how Tottenham set up, as Gab was alluding to there, how they look to counter that that threat. Maybe how they wear Rose and and uh, Trippy play, whether they play a little bit higher up or not.
2: Um, would away, I mean, I just, from your position, having I mean, played as a fullback, because I'm not saying he's going to do this because it might be too attacking or, or whatever, but we've seen him play 4-3-3 with, with Erickson and Alley in midfield out of necessity, right? So presume it's a final, might be more conservative. But if he did line up with Son and Locus Mora wide and Harry Kane central, wouldn't that naturally pin these fullbacks back? I mean, it's hard to see them attacking the way they do if you know that you've got those two guys behind you. Do you think that's something that? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that earlier, and maybe Harry Kane dropping off. Yeah, I mean,
3: it depends who who's in the ascendancy and who starts the game better and that kind of thing. Because at the end of the day, they're they going to have to defend with them. They're going to have to trap them back. So it's, it's that's the way it is these days. You can't have someone just stand high and wide and
2: and hope that the, the fullbacks don't no, attack. No, but I mean, work rate isn't really a problem with Son, but. Um, just even, but just use a fullback. If you knew you're playing against a team that that has a winger and you're supposed to attack, even if he doesn't track you, the idea that if one of your teammates loses a ball and it's a quick out, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're caught up the pitch and he's he's on the shoulder and running at your big slow central defender, that does plant a seed in your mind, right?
3: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's a possibility. Um, uh, that certainly would seem to be. And a more attacking approach than, than if he just played two fullbacks and, and hoped that that was going to...
2: It puts a lot of strain on the midfield if he does that. And you're asking Ali to go and, and help out with the holding midfielder, who I would assume would be Sissoko, right? Because Pochettino does occasionally throw you curveballs that you don't expect.
5: Well, I think it's it's interesting. I think we saw during the, the Liverpool second leg against Barcelona, I think one of the, the real key features of that game on the Barcelona side was obviously that they didn't have Ousmane Dembele. And that, for me, was a player that they massively missed because you just didn't have any kind of... Pace. You didn't have that threat of pace on the counter. And so that, to me, is why, I guess, Son is probably a more guaranteed starter than Lucas in this final. And I think Son is absolutely key because he's got that pace. We, assuming that he plays kind of on or from the left, we know that Klopp must have, to some extent, some concerns about Trent. Alexander Arnold is a kind of defensive player. That presumably is why he played Joe Gomez at right back in the in the new camp. So I think, obviously, you would imagine he's not he's going to play Alexander Arnold in the final. So for me, Son versus Alexander Arnold could be an absolutely key battle in this in this match. Well, what we
1: do know is that both managers come into this uh, final having not won a trophy with. Either Tottenham or Liverpool, respectively. Or
2: so, anybody s- ever in Pochettino's well, case, indeed. as his enemies love to remind us.
1: <laughs> indeed, but Gab, someone is going to break their duck then.
2: Yeah, and look, you know, I'm in Camp Potch on this <laughs> one. Like, you know, trophies are for egos. That's not how you judge a manager's work. And, and I know people are going to come out of the woodwork and say, you know, the, the usual Neanderthal points, but I think it's true. Obviously, it's nice to win a trophy, it's important to win a trophy obviously this would be Tottenham's biggest trophy since they did the double in 1961. And in fact, if you're of a more European bet, you might say this is actually bigger than the double that they won in 1961. Yeah, it does move the needle and it does generate excitement, and it's important for the club commercially and whatever. There is that weird story about, you know, the whole Pochettino, I might leave angle to it as well, which I find absolutely fascinating and Pochettino you know, wins the European Cup and he says, OK, my work here is done. Time for a new challenge. I can't take the club any further than winning the biggest trophy in club sport in the world. I just wonder, I mean, do, do, we, do we believe that this is even a possibility? Or?
1: But isn't that going against what he was saying about trophies are for ego? Surely there is more to do. <laughs> if you win the Champions League, surely you think this is where I'm going to start and kick on.
2: I mean, look, I honestly don't know what he's going to do, and I completely agree with you. But he's already made them into a team that can uh, challenge for the, for the Premier League title. He's done that already, right? They challenged Leicester for the Premier League title and came up short. There's a reality there, I think, with some of the contracts of some of the players, like Christian Eriksen, um, like Alderweireld. There's a reality there that Manchester City and Liverpool are in another stratosphere right now in terms of resources, that Manchester United can be. I don't know. I would you be tempted if you win this? Would you be tempted to move on, Gibrat, if you were Poch?
5: Well, I think I guess the other kind of aspect to this is the sort of the the landscape of the kind of big jobs in Europe. And from that point of view, I'm not I'm not sure what the obvious opening for Poch is. Obviously, we, Barcelona is one that
2: seems yes, like it may it's, become available, but I'm not going to happen. He's repeatedly said that yet. he
5: won't do that because of his Espanol loyalties. Tuchel has just extended at PSG. I guess Bayern isn't a completely open and shut case, but you would imagine that them winning the cup makes it more likely that Kovac will stay. Juve, I guess, is a possibility that could be...
2: I think Juve is the obvious one. Could be in play. Or even Bayern, even with Kovac winning the trophy, I think if Bayern see a better option, which you'd have to consider Pochettino to be, they may be pushing this. And it may be that it's something Pochettino does to get more leverage, more assurances um, from from Levy. We we have seen him do this before. And look, please, Spurs, please don't have a go at us like when he was being linked with United. Like, he's really good. I'm going by what he said. It would be great to see him back. But it is true that even with the new stadium, I think Tottenham's job just keeps getting more and more difficult every year.
3: I think the deciding factor more than whether he wins this trophy or not is what investment he gets in the summer, I think... You know, it can't go on like it has in the last two windows or even close to it. So I think he's going to need investment and I think the club know that. So they've been bad not to.
2: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price.
1: This season, with your subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. So that is the second European final featuring two English clubs this week. Let's move on to the first. Arsenal take on Chelsea in the Europa League final. Unai Emery looking for his fourth Europa League title and a chance to take the Gunners into the Champions League. Maurizio Sarri is aiming to win his first trophy in management. Well, Ollie Kay joins us now. And Ollie, a busy week for you coming up.
0: Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's already started. As we speak, I'm at Heathrow, having left at home at up north at 4.30 this morning, Manchester, then Heathrow, and um, then Istanbul, and then Baku. And um, I get to Baku very late tonight. It's a hell of a long way, isn't it, Baku? Um, I've forgotten just how, just how far it is. It's, um, it's sort of six-hour flights, Normally, but going via Istanbul, it's obviously taking a bit longer. Um, and having been able to book before the um, before the semi-finals were decided, and and not had to wait until um, the second legs were done, it does bring it home how difficult it is for for fans to get there, and and how expensive it is, and how much time you. you know, there, are, there are people who are going back via. Bahrain and via Doha and stuff like that. It's, it's so difficult a place to get to and you just wonder, apart from everything else that we've spoken about previously with Mkhitaryan and so on, but even on the most basic level, um, it's such a difficult place to get to with flights in and out, with airport capacity, with hotel capacity to some extent that it's not really surprising that, that, the, um, that there are going to be a lot of tickets returned both from Sponsors and and indeed from the clubs I mean there was people were up in arms about um, how few tickets there, there were made available for the two clubs. I think they are going to be chelsea going to return tickets because they haven 't been able to sell them just because of the sheer difficulty of of getting here and it's um all, all the things we talked about before about about the choice of venue i don 't think this is a an experience that um, too many people are going to be looking back on with um, with a, a great sense of a job well done by UEFA i'm absolutely not saying that the location makes it impossible to have it there because you know it, it, it's a, it's as far up from Britain. As you can get in Europe, but that's that's not a problem because the British Isles is an outpost anyway. So we shouldn't be thinking, well, you can't have final there because it's it's six hours flight from from, from Britain. But it's it's just it's just stupid to have people going so far, and if it's it's stupid to have journalists going going so far and, and chalking up so many air miles and you know carbon footprints and so on. It, it's it's it is stupid, and I I totally agree with the piece that James. Um, wrote on the, um, on the Times website last week where he suggested that the perfect solution is to revert to the old-fashioned UEFA Cup um, model where, where they had two-legged finals, one home, one away. I mean, people said, well, that's not great for the UEFA fans. Well, <laughs> if they win it in the second leg and there are only 2,000 of, 2, of them there to see it, well, that's all there are going to be of Chelsea on, um, on Wednesday night.
1: The build-up has been mired in controversy around the venue of Baku, as Oli has said, and much of it surrounding Henrik Mkhitaryan as well. Gab, for those that aren't familiar with the political background, what's going on here?
2: So Mkhitaryan, of course, is from Armenia, where he's a he's a national hero. There's an area sort of along the border between the two countries. we were growing up, I heard it referred to as the disputed enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, where I think uh, it's an Armenian enclave politically in Azerbaijan a lot of this has to do with what happened when the Soviet Union broke up because a lot of these states were just basically lines drawn on a map without too much regard and that's why you get these tensions um, technically I think the two countries are still a, are still at war uh, there have been mass evacuations it's it's been a very bloody conflict Mikitarian feels that he would not be safe in Azerbaijan because he's Armenian the Azerbaijani government and the Azerbaijani FA and UEFA have said, no, look, you're safe. Other Armenian athletes have, have come to compete in, in Azerbaijan. This isn't about politics. This is about sport. For whatever reason, and there may be reasons beyond that. I mean, look, if he doesn't feel safe, he doesn't feel safe. But you wonder if maybe there aren't issues also possibly to do with insurance, possibly to do with, with other factors, to do with the reaction back home in Armenia as well. You know, people maybe not wanting him to play there. It's just a lot for for somebody to worry about. You can ask, why play the final in Azerbaijan, if that's the case? Probably would be a similar situation if they played the final in Armenia and there were Azeris playing there. This is going to become a political football, has become a political football, and, and that's a downside. It should, like I said, it, he didn't play when they played, was it Karabakh they, they played, mm-hmm. James? You know, he didn't play then either. These are personal decisions that people make and have to do what they're comfortable with.
1: You also missed a game when he played for Borussia Dortmund as well, when they played in Azerbaijan. Yes. I,
5: I think part, part of I think people's frustration with it is this was actually eminently predictable. Arsenal were among the favourites to get to the Europa League final since the start of the competition. But Henrik Vekasarian has been, you know, he's not, he's not emerged out of nowhere this season. He's a you know, prominent player in European football for a, a while. I think one of the things that's kind of missing in this story is that the Azerbaijani authorities say that they did provide safety guarantees, which obviously were not deemed sufficient by Mikatarian and Arsenal. So it'd be interesting to kind of know exactly what was, what was sought and, and, you know, what they, what they came back with. And I think one of the other things that maybe we miss in, in all this is in England... The Europa League is not a huge thing and hence the Europa League final is not a huge thing but from the perspective of Mkhitaryan, this is probably the biggest game in his career one of, if not the single biggest game in his career You know, we can have that semantic argument about whether it's a case of can't play or won't play but this is Armenia's biggest sports star in the potentially you know, arguably the biggest game of his career and he is in a very very difficult situation
2: and I think we should point out that you know, last year, the Champions League final was, was in Kiev, uh, in, in Ukraine. We could have easily had a situation there as well where a Russian club or even just a Russian player yeah. at a top reaches the final. I think th- these are the tricky things that, that you have to navigate as an organization because you can also make the point and say, all right, so, okay, so you countries that we deem to be security risks for certain individuals – very small minority of individuals who actually play professional football in a very small minority of clubs, you guys don't get to host competitions, right? I mean, that would be be the counter-argument to it.
1: We obviously know that there is difficulty in in fans getting to the game, uh, as well as this Mkhitaryan issue. Some have suggested that two clubs should have boycotted this game. Gregor, do you think that would have been the right solution? Uh,
3: When the the news first broke, it was tempting to think that way, but I think... As the guys have articulated, there's there's enough sort of issues around this and, and kind of complications. It's not it's not straightforward, you know. It's ultimately Mkhitaryan taking this decision himself with valid reasons. Um, I think really it all it all comes back to Azerbaijan being granted the final in the first place. I think if 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 Gab's right in saying that they're at war with another, it's probably a- technically.
2: I don't think the you know the armistice hasn't been. That's a, it's a good place to
3: start. I think that's probably a good clue to, to not hand a country. I, yeah, but, you know. No,
2: I, what, what I would say about that, though, is that, you know, not that long ago in the 80s and 90s, you could have, depending to what degree you stretch a definition of at war, right? So Nagorno-Karabakh is the opposite end of Azerbaijan. You could have made the same point, well, surely we can't have anything at Wembley because there's war in Northern Ireland, right? And there's troubles and there's people blowing things up.
3: Might
2: have been a valid point. Right. (laughs) You you think so? I think so, yeah. (laughs) I think if there's
3: possibly a threat, then then you don't host a a final there. It's it's about people's safety, players and fans, really. The whole
2: thing, unfortunately, gets completely politicised. I mean, imagine the Azerbaijani Minister for Tourism, you know, popping up and saying, like, these are the crime statistics in Azerbaijan. These are the crime statistics in London with knives and terrorists and whatever. and, And look, we are much safer, so, you know you English people get off your high horse and then and you don't know where the truth is, what the logic is, you know. I, I just think where there are minimum security guarantees in place, and there are in Azerbaijan, you just have to respect individual decisions of people who don't feel that they're comfortable to be there and say, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, to me that... The Peter Cech angle to the story. Well,
1: that's what I wanted to come re- on to <laughs> next.
2: It's equally remarkable. Mm.
1: So, uh, Peter Check, he has been Arsenal's Europa League goalkeeper. He's retiring after this match, and reports suggest he'll then be joining Chelsea in a sporting director type role. So, Gab, you're intrigued by it. Do you start, Peter Cech?
2: Well, it's funny, we had a very similar situation. In Serie A at the end of last season, and this was with a player where um, De Fry who was at Lazio at the time, the Dutch defender, he was at a contract and news emerged that he'd agreed to join Inter Milan the following season on a Bosman. And then they were playing Lazio on the last day of the season for uh, a place in the Champions League, effectively. So, you know, the question is, what do you do with those situations?
5: And he, he, he made a sort of terrible error, didn't he, in that game? <laughs> yeah,
2: that's the way it was depicted. I mean he also he also came very close to scoring as right. well. So, you know, I, I don't think anybody's doubting his integrity, but the idea no, is do you put somebody in that position? Now it's even more extreme I think I think there than Peter Check. What I'm really surprised at this is I don't know we get all high and Mighty and tapping up and whatever. I got to know Peter Check at the, the tiny bit. I I think he's a phenomenal pro and a phenomenal person. But this is really, really bad judgment on his part to speak to them. I mean, assuming he has while he's still under contract. While he knows that, you know, forget the Europa League final, but they're going head-to-head with Chelsea for, for a spot in the Champions League, let's not forget. So unless he somehow knew that, unless Emery had told them, you know, in a squeaky voice that, look, you know, you're not going to play again the rest of the season, or he sought permission from Arsenal, which which he may have done, and that would be a classy thing to do. I, I hope he did that because otherwise he's really putting himself in a in a really unpleasant position.
1: So would you start him?
2: <laughs> no, I'd start Leno. I, okay. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I, I don't think it would be fair to anybody if Czech makes mistakes. I think Leno's well. Gearbrand's going to tell us that Leno's a better goalkeeper, what right? Is, and he is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
5: yeah. I think Leno has uh, Leno has been really good this season, <laughs> and and, and every
2: yeah. obviously thinks he's a better goalkeeper. So I I think you know as I said unless. Peter Cech went and, you know, to spoke to Rawls and Yehi and said, hey, look, I'm retiring, Chelsea might be offering me a job. Is it cool with you if I go talk to them? And if Arsenal say, fine, then that's different. Mm-hmm. If he simply did this without alerting Arsenal, then I think Arsenal are more than entitled to say, sorry, Peter, you're not playing in this game. Gregor, what do you think?
3: I agree. I think if, you, if you're to ask... Peter Check, we all know what the answer is. He wants to play in his last game, and and he'll say that it's not going to affect him. He's been in some pretty big pressure games and situations before. Um, but it's going to add a little bit of pressure, a little bit of kind of needle to the to the game. Um, so that's ultimately Emery's decision, and I think the safest one is to is to start Leno. Yeah,
5: it's kind of an interesting debate anyway. The whole issue of whether you should, if you have a cup goalkeeper and a league goalkeeper, whether you should just chuck your cup goalkeeper when you get to a big final and we actually know because obviously Emery has a long history in this competition that Emery doesn't do that in general um, I think when he he coached Sevilla to three consecutive Europa League titles and I think David Soria was the cup goalkeeper and I think Sergio Rico was the league goalkeeper and Soria played in the finals people say you know well it's, it's a huge match why wouldn't you start your best goalkeeper and I've always been kind of slightly sympathetic to the idea that you should show your cup goalkeeper with a little bit of loyalty because if you want to have two decent goalkeepers, if you want to have, you know, if you want, as a club, you want to attract a high quality backup goalkeeper, obviously you need to sort of offer them certain assurances that they're actually going to play in meaningful games. And I think if you don't give a you know, your second choice goalkeeper, the rewards of, you know, having played an entire tournament, then playing in the final, it sort of diminishes the offer that you can make when you're sort of recruiting a backup goalkeeper.
2: Um, Although this backup goalkeeper is retiring from football, so yeah, you could take a bit more liberties with Of that.
5: course, I mean, and yeah, like, you know, exactly. Emery could just say, well, you know, he's not going to be part of the club next season, so, you know, he could just be completely Machiavellian about it and pick. I mean, of course, he, he, he could do that. I thought it was kind of interesting as well, Emery's press conference before this. I'm assuming, I, I think i am doing another one, but he he did one last week at the Arsenal training ground, and he was really kind of animated and impassioned on the subject of Petr Cech, much more so than he was about the subject of Henrik Mkhitaryan not being, you know, not playing in this final. Going on about he's such a great guy, you know. He's such an amazing person, you know. Do you know he can speak Russian? I didn't know that. Wow, what a cool guy! He plays the drums; amazing. <laughs> Which, I mean, honestly, is like it's the most impassioned Emery has been all season. Yeah, seriously,
2: no. I'm I'm really shocked because Emery's press conferences are absolutely dire. He's one of the least pleasant people to listen to when he's front of mic. I mean, maybe he's good company at dinner, but I. And, and so he went. He went all out. He got. He, he became fun. Unai.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, let me ask you, James, because you've written a piece uh, about Meza Erzl in the Times. Who is he then? Because you've really got to know him, haven't you? Who is he, and will we see him on Wednesday night?
5: No, I, I think what's what's really interesting about Erzul and the kind of reason for writing the piece is when he won the World Cup uh, five years ago in 2014. He was really kind of seen as the sort of. The, real, the poster boy of a very multicultural German team and there was a lot of kind of you know, social significance attached to him. And obviously what's very interesting now in the sort of final stage of his career is that that kind of importance has materialised in a completely different way because obviously last year he explosively withdrew himself from the German national team making allegations of discrimination and essentially... Racial discrimination against the German Football Association, but kind of also more widely the media and, I guess, in general society itself. So it's kind of fascinating what Özil's legacy will be and how he'll be remembered. And I think the kind of whole issue of his sort of his identity is incredibly complex. I mean, obviously the whole thing was started by him posing for photos with the. Authoritarian Turkish president Recep Tayyip Erdogan, which he has always been completely unrepentant about, and he has always maintained that this was simply him honouring the highest office of his ancestral homeland and was not kind of political endorsement of Erdogan. Just last week, however, he was pictured again with Erdogan in Istanbul and reportedly has invited him to his wedding. I think most people would agree that the kind of scapegoating of of him that happened after the World Cup was totally excessive and that he was right and, you know, brave to kind of call attention to it. It's a really kind of complex issue, but I find him such a fascinating player. I think he remains very enigmatic. I have the impression that he's never really kind of been loved in England, although, and we sort of debate whether he's actually been a good player or, you know, whether he's kind of been ultimately a bit disappointing at Arsenal. I don't think he's ever he's ever really been loved like some of the other kind of foreign stars in the Premier League era.
2: It wasn't simply the fact that Erdogan was seen by, was an authoritarian leader. It was at the time there was a dispute going on between Germany and Turkey, specifically over Germans who were eligible to vote in Turkish elections and and their treatment and speeches that were that were given in Germany and there was a lot of political tension between those two countries and I know I I got the sense that Özil is not a guy who speaks much and the guy and he's a guy who's apolitical and he has other interests I mean he's got a chain of coffee shops as well that that he's, he's
5: got a chain of coffee shops he sort of has his own kind of e-sports academy basically I think. You're right. I mean, he's not sort of. He said
2: he's enigmatic. Like, What's the Which is weird? about it's the same thing in Madrid too. what you said, like, you know, in Madrid he had, it's an, I'm going to get the number wrong, but it's an, something stupid like 57 assists over two years. There's something something absurd, right? Now you could also make the point that, oh yeah, that's fine. That Madrid team just passed the ball to Ronaldo, he scores. You know, any muppet can get an assist, but it's still quite a feat. And yet, when he left Real Madrid, even though he left for a huge amount of money nobody was sort of sad to see him go um, in terms of the media or whatever. It's this unusual sphere he inhabits where he should be a superstar. And he obviously has interests that that go beyond football. But for some reason, it just doesn't necessarily translate into into commercial popularity. And I don't think it's simply because of the way he plays football, which, which inevitably divides opinion with some people saying he's one of the top five players of the Premier League and others saying that he's lazy and whatever and, and even Emery adding gasoline in the fire with his treatment of, of Ozil this season.
1: It is interesting what you were saying there, James, about him not perhaps being loved as one of the best Premier League imports. Gregor, is he misunderstood? Is he a better player than those that are suggesting he shouldn't be in the top five in, in the Premier League are, are saying?
2: Well, I'm assuming it's everybody doesn't think he's in the top five. <laughs> I mean, I, I, in terms of ability,
3: maybe, but, yeah. You know.
2: Nobody's going to have them. Nobody's no. going to have Ozil in their top five in Not the tournament. for me, Nobody. no. Thank
3: you. Um, yeah, it's a complicated one. I think, I think the, the kind of way the game's evolved as well that you know there's very few players can be have any sort of inkling of being a sort of a luxury at any moment. You know, it's, it's all about the system and and uh, everyone has to press and and get in so much so much effort essentially defensively as well. And that's where the question marks arise. Maybe it's the team he's in. He's in as well, and the system. It's, he's not played in a hugely successful Arsenal team, has he? And the German team was that was that was uh, hugely successful team. So, I mean, that could be a, an aspect of it. And then there's obviously just his sort of the way he's perceived, the way he kind of carries himself on the pitch. And that's uh, there are players that portray uh, a certain image, and it's not kind of what fans, especially in English football. Uh, Roaring down and flying into tackles and that kind of. There's still an element of that in in, uh, in English football. I think that's
5: kind of what's so interesting about it is it's not like I think it's a hugely kind of nuanced case because in some ways Özil clearly has not been as effective a player as as he might have been, and I don't think even his most ardent supporters would argue he is not the most you know he's not the most defensively kind of hardworking player, but also as Growell kind of alluded to so much of the way we talk about it is actually bound up in actually kind of really quite sort of ideas of national identity that, you know, English football is all about, you know, kind of rolling your sleeves up and really getting stuck in. And, and there's I think, you know, there's quite a similar perception in, in Germany that the sort of old school values of the sort of previous kind of West Germany tournament-winning sides, they were hard-working sides that would fight, you know, for every last ball, and that, that's just... Although Ozil has many qualities, those are obviously, those are not his qualities. His qualities are not what you might sort of call typically German sort of football qualities. I think he's such a such an interesting player. And I think there's, you know, I think there's so much nuance to the kind of perception of him, both as a player and as a person. I think, you know, without being too kind of gloom about it, I think, you know, there's right and wrong on both sides, basically. We spoke about the future of
1: one manager earlier on with Maurizio Pochettino. What about Maurizio Sarri, who spoke last week, stating that if his future at Chelsea depended on winning this final, he should quit now. Gav, what do you make of those comments? And how defining a match is this for Sarri?
2: I think it's stating the absolute obvious. <laughs> and, you know, I almost find it funny. I don't know I wanna go and blame the media, or especially all those talking head ex-pros in the media, not Gregor, <laughs> um, but... If you judge somebody's future on a single match, then you're not doing your job as a club. There's many different ways that you can win a game or lose a game. If you think somebody should be, should replace Sarri as Chelsea manager, then this should make no difference whatsoever, uh, a single game. He's obviously been heavily linked to Juventus, which would be absolutely extraordinary in terms of the, the departure for, for Juventus from how they've operated before and Sorry, his own history as a former Napoli manager. I don't know. I'll believe it. I'll believe it when I see it, if it happens. Um, but, I mean, I think he's already ticked the boxes that he needed to take for this year. He hit his objectives. They finished third in the table. They reached two finals. They lost one on on penalties while playing really, really well, I thought, against Manchester City, who were the best team in England. And there's going to be presumably some big upheaval at Chelsea over the summer. And he's somebody who generally works with what he has at his disposal. You know, he's not the most pragmatic. He thinks he can go and he can teach his football and turn Ross Barkley into Merrick Hamsick and whatever else. So, I to me, it wouldn't make any sense for Chelsea to sack him. From, from his perspective, if the Juventus offer is real, if they're willing to to go and pay Chelsea compensation and take him, then, then obviously you think about it. All right, that's all we've got time for today on our Bumper UEFA Competition Final Podcast. Many, many thanks to our excellent guests today. It's a pleasure to have in the studio James Gearbrand and Gregor Robertson. And also down the line, Ollie Kay on his way to Baku and Paul Joyce in beautiful downtown Ormskirk.
1: Remember you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet it is just a pound a week for an eight week trial search the times subscription for more information
2: and i'm going to be back next monday with reaction to that champions league final
5: the game is brought to you by the times for more information and more podcasts from the times head to thetimes.co.uk